I Think Therefore I Fan podcast is generously supported by our listeners. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, go to our webpage, that's IThinkThereforeIFan.com, all one word, click on the link that says Donate, and follow the instructions. Your support is greatly appreciated. Spoiler warning time. In this episode, we discuss The Seventh Seal, Mr. Robot, A Serious Man, Oh God, The Brothers Karamazov, Seven, Westworld, Star Trek, Miracle Workers, The Book of Job, The Handmaid's Tale, The Tree of Life, The Good Place, Captain Marvel, Russian Doll, The Battle of Buster Scruggs, Crashing, Shameless, and The Favorite. You've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Um, We now kick off season three of I Think Therefore I Fan. And this episode is on the problem of evil. So those of you who heard the last episode of season two will recall that this is a two-parter, right? So in that episode, we looked at arguments for the existence of God, talked to a number of prominent philosophers who shared with us either their favorite argument for the existence of God or one that they thought was particularly compelling. So today we're going to look at the other side of the coin, right? Um, Arguments against the existence of God, specifically the celebrated problem of evil, which is an argument designed to show that God, as traditionally conceived by theologians and philosophers, couldn't possibly exist. So, um, before we jump into that, um, we've been off for a few weeks. Let's say a little bit about what we've been up to. Oh, lots of work of various kinds. But uh, one thing that stands out is that just last weekend, we held the National Ethics Bowl. Richard's the director of the National Ethics Bowl, and so he's been hard at work putting that together. And I know that some of our listeners are heavily involved and work hard on that, too. So, uh, we, we had a lot of fun with that. The Ethics Bowl is a debate activity where teams get together and and civilly focus strong focus on mm-hmm. civility here civilly and rationally discuss uh, contemporary moral issues. So some of them concern pop culture. So we had one this year on sex bots. Okay, sex bots. Right. That's not really about pop culture. Well, sort of. Um, but it's going to be right. Yeah, sex bots definitely pop up in in pop culture. But this one was sort of specifically on pop culture or the production of pop culture. So you want to say a little bit about it? Oh, this the, the other case? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so one of them was had to do with the way that women are represented in film. Mhm. And so it took Emma Stone for as an example and looked at her age at the time of the the filming of the of the you know movie or television show or whatever, and then looked at the age of the leading man who is playing alongside her, and uh, at and 
there's a pretty obvious trend of the the man being much older. Mm-hmm. Now you and I are the poster children for uh, complaints against age difference in relationships, but uh, uh, it is um, troubling. It's not necessarily the age difference, but that um, Hollywood will routinely cast very young actresses and they have just very short uh, careers mm-hmm. as leading women, whereas men can be leading men well into their 60s, sometimes even into their early 70s. Yeah. In some cases, seemingly years after they've died. Um. <laughs> <laughs> we can do a lot with CGI these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's, it's an interesting case because um, it's an ongoing problem, right? The Emma Stone example is just one example of many where this, this happens over and over. But how do, how do you deal with this is one of the questions. I mean, uh, this is artistic expression. It's free speech, mm-hmm. uh, types of issues involved. And so what the teams do is debate the cases. And uh, unlike traditional debate, teams can actually take the same position. And when they do, they have to find a meaningful way to have a conversation about that. So uh, it's it's really great. And there, it happens at the college level, but it also happens at the high school level. So if you want to get involved in some way, uh, contact us. Contact us. You know where to find us, and we can put you in touch with people in your area um, to allow you to participate, coach. Um, there's any number of ways to engage. Okay, so the, the problem of evil. Um, do you want to give a brief overview of, of the problem of evil? Sure. So probably the very first thing to do is to say what we mean by evil. I think my, often my students get really tripped up on this initial fact because when they picture evil, they're thinking of something demonic. They're thinking Reagan from The Exorcist, head-spinning, pea-soup, barfing, mm-hmm. possessed kid or something, or, or something uh, like insidious, right, uh, uh, that it's almost supernatural, Mm-hmm. And that's not what we have in mind. All we mean by evil in this case is suffering. Okay. And that can happen. It can be suffering of various types and to various extremes. Right. And, and this is all that's really required to get the problem of evil off the ground. Mm-hmm. So stubbing your toe would be an instance of evil uh, in, in this way. Uh, so too would be 9-11 or Sandy Hook. Right. So anything that would sort of count as physical evil, as well as the sort of moral evil we were talking about a moment ago when you're talking about, um, you know, demonic possession or you know, vampires being mm-hmm. cursed or, you know, um, somebody like a Hitler who mm-hmm. has nefarious intentions. Right. So then uh, we should talk about who the problem of evil is supposed to be a problem of evil for. And maybe that was a strange way of saying it because... If you want there to be a God, it's a problem for everyone. But (laughs) what I mean is, uh, um, what type of a God is it supposed to raise issues for? So uh, the the problem of evil raises a a challenge for belief in a God with three traits. So one, the God, a, a God that is omnipotent, meaning that that God can do anything that's logically possible. Two, that that God is omniscient, meaning that he or she knows everything, and three, that that God is omnibenevolent, meaning that that God is all good. Right. And some philosophers maintain that the, the second of those isn't even necessary, right? No, um, it's omnipotence. Om, omniscience. Oh, omniscience, sorry. Right. Um, that, you know, any a God that's omnipotent would necessarily be omniscient because if God can do anything logically possible, 
that would involve also having the ability to know any and all propositions, right? Or know mm-hmm. all true propositions. Mm-hmm. All propositions. But may as well throw omniscience in there just yeah, to yeah. Uh, just in case someone might think that they're distinct. But I'm with you. But and it also helps tell the story, uh-huh. right? So. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's a, right. That's a crucial part. So let's go ahead and tell that story. So here's the argument. Very simple. Two premises and a conclusion. Uh, if evil exists in the world, then God does not exist. Evil exists in the world. Therefore, God does not exist. So what we want to do now is justify each of those premises. The second premise is just really easy to justify. The premise that evil exists. All you have to do is look at the world to be able to tell that. Right. If you, if you take a look at the world and you're still dubious of it, um, and I'm not recommending anybody do this, but this is one way. Go to the garage, grab a hammer, um, <laughs> lay your hand down on something <laughs> flat, right? And, and smash it right, to bits. Uh, observe what you're experiencing <laughs> at that exact moment. We'll, we'll call that excruciating pain or something, right? That would count as an instance of physical evil. Yeah. That you inflicted on yourself. Yeah, and um, by no means did it because we suggested it. Um, <laughs> Don't try this out. Legal disclaimer, do not smash your hand with a hammer. <laughs> so, right. Um, so why, so then let's take a look at the, the justification for the first premise. So it has to do with God's traits. So uh, if God is omniscient, then he knows about the evil uh, that, that exists in the world. And what's more, he's known from eternity. He, uh, w- that the evil would exist in the world. Because as part of God's omniscience, not only does he know everything, but he always has. Mm-hmm. Like, isn't the, at right. no point, it's part of his essence. So at no point did he not know everything. Um, so he's known from the beginning of time, or as philosophers frequently say, from eternity, that, um, that the evil exists in the world and would exist. So then he's, omni- he's omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful, he can do anything that's logically possible, so he could have stopped the evil had he wanted to, and then finally, he's omnibenevolent, so he would want to. You know, he would want things like Sandy Hook not to happen, he would know that they were going to happen, and he would be powerful enough to prevent them from happening. Right, so the, the payoff of the argument then is, if the evil happened, then one of those claims about God has to go, right? Mm-hmm. That he either didn't want to prevent it, in which case is not omnibenevolent, or couldn't have prevented it, in which case is not omnipotent, right? All evil would be superfluous. Now, ways of of responding to the problem of evil um, are generally called theodicies, right? There's there's some responses that don't count as theodicies, but theodicies are attempts to sort of reconcile all those claims, to say, here's how we can have an all-good, all-powerful God, um, an all-knowing God, and yet have evil at the same time. So, um, you know, the philosophers that we're going to talk to today um, will look at some of the theodicies and raise some issues with them. Before, but before that, um, why don't we say a little bit about um, the problem of evil as it appears in pop culture? There are lots of illustrations of the problem of evil in pop culture. In fact, I think I mentioned last time that I think you see more illustrations of the problem of evil in pop culture than you do, uh, than you see arguments for the existence of God. Uh, yeah, considerably more. I yeah, would say. I think that often in pop culture, when religious views are represented, they're often just 
sort of portrayed as a status quo, right? You don't see a lot of arguments for presented in pop culture, but you do see, you do see the problem of evil explored. I'll just mention, I know John Garcia is going to mention the movie seven, mm-hmm. which explores this in an interesting way, but I, I'll just mention here two of my favorite instances of it. So if you want a kind of a uh, recommended viewing list for problem of evil material, here you go. Two. <laughs> um, one is the movie The Seventh Seal. And I make the argument that The Seventh Seal is maybe the best philosophical movie ever made. It explores themes in existentialism. It explores themes in philosophy of religion. Um, and I think it does a great job with the problem of evil. So the whole premise of the, show, of the movie is that the main character is um, playing a chess game with death. So mm-hmm. and we've seen tons of iterations of that since. Uh, where like on the Simpsons and so on, but uh, as the the rest of the stories uh, in the Seventh Seal unfold, you're just seeing senseless, meaningless suffering, and the characters are trying to make sense out of it, and they're not successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in a previous podcast, I've described the witch burning scene where the witch is realizing there's nothing beyond, and that her sufferings, you know, she may thought may have thought she was dedicating her life to Satan, but it all ended up being meaningless, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so the, 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 that film explores meaninglessness, but also needless suffering. Um, and then the other one, it's a more contemporary example, is uh, the, a great scene in um, season, uh, it was season two, episode three of Mr. Robot. And if you haven't watched Mr. Robot, I highly recommend it. We Richard and I did a, a, a collection of papers, or edited a collection of papers on Mr. Robot in philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, in this scene, Elliot's at a support group, and he's talking to other uh, folks in the support group who are advocating leaning on God for support and... Uh, he, of course, uh, Mr. Robot is a very so has a lot of uh, is, a, is a lot about economic structure, um, explores ideas in socialism and so on. And Eliot points out that, or Eliot makes the claim, I should say, that religion is just another way of controlling common people, and that uh, the problem of evil reflection on the problem of evil should cause you to recognize that that. Uh, we've got all this senseless suffering going on. The existence of God is incompatible with the existence of senseless suffering. Uh, but if we continue this God narrative, then it's easier for people to control us. So mm-hmm. that's, that's an interesting uh, use of it, too. Nice. One, one instance of it that I really like is in the Coen Brothers film, A Serious Man, right? So this is one of just sort of many versions of the Job story. Right. And so there's conversations there with the main character and then he's talking to a, you know, a rabbi and they raise the problem of evil. Um, and then a, another one I like at the risk of dating myself, um, the great conversation in the George Burns, John Denver movie. Oh, God, from back in the 70s. Right. When um, John Denver, a sort of well-meaning guy, you know, comes face to face with God and um it's to ask them some questions, right? And that's the, the natural question to ask. All right. Our first guest is John Garcia, a professor of philosophy at Harper College. Hi, John. Hi, John. Hi, Richard. Hi, Rachel. 
Thank you um, very much for, for talking to us today. So you've got a, a theodicy in particular that, that you find um, interesting. So why don't you tell our listeners about that and, and your response to it? Yeah, I guess uh, my main thinking about the problem of evil is just that a lot of the arguments um, that try to explain evil away are so bad. So you know, if you take, for example, the argument that you um, need bad or you need evil to appreciate good, um, that always struck me as a sort of an absurd argument, right? And I joke with my students that, you know, I appreciate summer more after having a winter, um, and so that makes sense. But it certainly doesn't seem to do any justice to real evil in the world. So the idea that, um, you know, when you're at Thanksgiving dinner, and that the fact that somebody around the world is dying of a disease doesn't make me enjoy my turkey dinner anymore. <laughs> and so it always struck me as a bizarre argument. Right, right. So you're you're there and you're thinking, boy, <laughs> thank goodness for little Timmy and his his leukemia. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yes. Right. The joke I make with them is, you know, when they take turns going around the Thanksgiving dinner saying what they're thankful for, right? Let's see if they get invited back again when it's their turn and they say, Well, I'm I'm thankful Timmy's dying. <laughs> I appreciate things more. Yeah, great. And then um, when we were talking, you mentioned this is um, sort of a variation on a, a discussion in the Brothers Karamazov. Yeah, I, I, it's one of my favorite books to teach in my classes. Um, and in the chapter Rebellion from that novel, you have Ivan lay out sort of a whole series of horrible stories of evil. And then he sort of tears into a lot of the arguments that attempt to justify evil. Um, you know, one of them is the one I just mentioned. Um, the idea that it's sort of all part of a greater plan gets mentioned there. Um, and that, I, you know, I, again, that's something I talk about with my students too. It's this idea that, you know, a lot of students will say, well, you know, if I hadn't gone back for my keys, I would have been in that car accident. And I always joke like, right, I guess God doesn't care about the guy who was in the car accident. <laughs> um, it just seems to me that there's a lot of uh, bad arguments. They're serious arguments, you know, and um, um, he does this really scathing attack in that. And, um, the, you know, and I had a teacher once who said that the uh, one way to look at that novel is that the whole rest of the novel is an attempt to answer Ivan's challenge in that chapter. So it's oh, fascinating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting way to think about it. So are there any theodicies that you find more compelling than the others? You mentioned that these are some sort of pretty bad arguments, right? Um, which, which one comes closest, maybe, to, to making sense? Well, I think the two best, I think, come, uh, you see variations of them all over, um, but they can be found in the Brothers Karamazov, and then from a pop culture point of view, um, one of them I'll mention uh, one of my favorite movies to see it in is the movie Seven. Um, it's a little older now, but um, and the two, I would say that the free will argument seems somewhat compelling, right? That it's not it's humans that create evil, and the argument then is whether it's worth the price or not. Um, 
Mm-hmm. And there's, I think, good arguments in both directions, right? That, like, do we really need to be able to conceive of torturing other human beings in order to have meaningful freedom? Um, and that gets hashed out again in that same chapter in Rebellion. But I think there's a good argument to be had that um, there is so much value in free will and um, that it's worth it. It's, it's tough, right? I think if you think of big events like 9-11, we have the ability to fly planes into buildings, and then you also see heroic actions on the same day. So that's a somewhat compelling argument. Mm -hmm. And then the other argument... Well, just real quickly, the the flip side to the free will argument is that only covers some portion of the things that that we think of as as being able, or at least human free will, right? So you you say, but what about a tsunami that that wipes out, you know, tens of thousands of uh, people, Um, right? You you can't get that with free will, although you have someone like Alvin Plantinga saying, oh, no, that's, you know, um, fallen angels exercising their free will. And then then the argument seems a little less compelling. Yeah, I've always, I think that's right, that the whole distinction sort of, um, moral evil and natural evil, and I've there's some philosophers who take the view that there's just no such thing as natural evil, right? That these are just natural things that happen, and it's our way of thinking about them that puts the label evil on them. I don't find that argument particularly compelling, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, you're right. It doesn't take a lot out. Although there's something there's something attractive to it in the sense that like. You know, there was just this plane crash last night. Yeah, I saw that. And it seemed to be, you know, we don't know the cause, but we think it's, you know, probably just an accident, let's say. Um, That somehow feels a little bit different than somebody intentionally torturing somebody else in terms of just the ability to wrap your head around it, you know? Right. Yeah, no, I, I think it is different. It's just the problem of evil needs to account for all of those kinds of things, right? It's... Absolutely. As yeah. long as they're profound. But I interrupted you. So you had a you had a, a second um, theodicy you wanted to, to briefly mention as well. well. Yeah, I think this is one that normally doesn't get discussed because it's not really an attempt to justify evil. And I so I think what makes it interesting, and this is the where it's relevant to the movie Seven. So the very end of the movie Seven. It's, it's uh, I think, literally the last line of the movie. Mm-hmm. Is, uh, Morgan Freeman's character says, um, Hemingway once wrote, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. And that's the end of the movie. Um, and I think there's a little bit of philosophy right there, which is mm-hmm. basically like, you can't justify evil. It is irrational. Mm-hmm. So then... Our goal isn't to try to explain it. Our goal is to try to figure out how best to deal with it, to overcome it, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of, if you want to be sympathetic to um, defenses of existence of God, you have to basically abandon this idea that you can really do a theodicy, that you can really come to understand it. You have to just sort of accept this idea of irrational, ununderstandable. Uh, reality. And I think one thing that frustrates me in some religious attempts to wrestle with the problem of evil is this reluctance to embrace um, unknowability, right? And and this sort of need to be able to explain it. 
Interesting. And yeah, so what Dostoevsky does is sort of makes an argument that, um, you know, evil's a fact of life we can't understand, but there's a lot of life we can't understand, and we ought to figure out the the ways that we can come become better uh, able to, you know, quote unquote, be our brother's keeper. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right, John. Well, thank you very much for talking to us. We appreciate thank it. Thank you. It was a good time. Appreciate mm-hmm. it. Cheers. Thanks. Bye. Our next guest is Cheryl Ann Lisenby, who's a local philosopher, at least local to us. Hi, Cheryl Ann. Hi, Cheryl Ann. Hi. Thank you for, for talking to us today. Oh, my pleasure. So you had a, a sort of interesting take on one version of the free will theodicy. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind telling our listeners about that. Oh, sure. My pleasure. Okay. So uh, just a quick overview. Uh, we've got the problem of evil, which is the question, how it's possible for an all-powerful guy to allow uh, significant amounts of suffering and to answer this is the free will theodicy that suggests that the creation of beings that have a very robust sense of autonomy and the ability to choose otherwise and to craft their own futures is so valuable that the good from that outweighs the harm that kind of is a byproduct of these creatures making decisions. And I wanted to talk about how this is kind of in conflict with the conception of a god of miracles that is also often assumed about what God would look like in our world. Mm-hmm. So um, first off, I wanted to kind of uh, look at what the, the structure of the free will that is presumed necessary to kind of get God off the hook for suffering. It has to be this... Um, really robust kind of branching future path about making choices where we craft our future as we go. Choices aren't kind of by past factors about or about us. So by, by making it this way, then this is an attempt to shift the blame from God onto the creatures that he has created that have this kind of robust free will where they have made their choices both for good and for bad, and so the harm is coming from their bad choices. So uh, if, if you want to think about it uh, in terms of, like, robots, we can, like, think to perhaps a programmer for one of the robots on Westworld, hmm. and especially one of the really old uh, robots like Old Bill that we see right at the beginning of mm-hmm. Westworld that's very scripted, kind of an automaton almost, only responds in certain ways to the prompts given to him. So if that kind of a robot were to do harm to somebody, you know, kill somebody with a gun, we're not going to blame Old Bill for that. We're going to look and find the programmer that scripted him to respond in such a way. Mm-hmm. In this same way, uh, we need to make sure that the creatures that God has created aren't kind of scripted, but have their own ability to uh, respond and improvise to the world around them in such a way that blame is on top of them. 
not mm-hmm. God. Right, but right. God even needs something stronger than just a programmer, right? Because a God can affect the world around these creatures. So we can ask why it would be that God might not step in almost in a, you know, kind of could throw up shields or stun people right before they do something. Or at the very least, he might, you know, just come down and make announcements and give very clear specific instructions on how to avoid harm. But why isn't he doing this? Well, we're going to need to assume something like a prime directive in place. Some kind of Mm non-interference is crucial in order to maintain this kind of free will. Mm -hmm. So um, once I heard this kind of explained, uh, well, like this. So if it was the case that every time you went to pick up a gun, and tried to kill somebody, but every single time that you intended harm, that gun just would not fire, and you tried it like 20 or 30 times, after a while, it just wouldn't even be a live option for you anymore Mm -hmm. to try to use guns to commit murder. So if you extrapolate this, and in every single case where you're trying to commit harm or do something bad, God's stepping in, God's preventing the action, then quickly this is taking away the choice to do harm. And you're only left with a choice to do good. But this isn't that branching path kind of radical free will that is supposed to be so valuable that God allows it to enable, or God allows that kind of free will so that, and and with it comes the suffering in the world, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, we've got to maintain this kind of aloof God that isn't coming down and constantly tampering with us so that we can have radical libertarian free will in the world if we want to save God from the blame of suffering. So now I want to look at the concept of the God of miracles. Uh, This is something that we often see in modern Christian idea. They don't want a God that is aloof, but they want a God that is relatable and is here to help us through our trials, a God that can be prayed to. Um, and, and with this, uh, I'd say there's three main kinds of miracles that people like thinking about. Um, they think about big world miracles, uh, things that violate the laws of physics. They think about small world miracles, which maybe it's just tweaking with probabilities. And then they think about the kind of miracles that are personal, mental kind of revelation moments. So let me talk about the problem with each of those really quickly. So first off, let's think of those big world miracles. So people who want to believe in the God of the Bible want it to be the case that things happen like the parting of the Red Sea or making a new star appear in the heavens or that the walls of Jericho dropped to allow wars to happen or even that crappy football teams might win, right? But this requires God altering the physical laws of the universe to enable these things. And this goes right back to what I was talking about where you'd need a God that was pushing and pulling at the strings of the world constantly, we'd be very aware of his presence, and it would 
hypothetically be removing these uh, half of our choices. And so we wouldn't have this wide open kind of libertarian free will that is needed. Okay, mm-hmm. so let's, let's, so people will retreat to small world miracles, things like praying to God to find lost keys or praying for rain for their crops or something like that. So I don't know if you guys have seen the, the new show called Miracle Workers with uh, Daniel Radcliffe and Steve Buscemi. Oh, it's been recommended but, to us. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it. on, our, <laughs> on our list. It's, it's kind of a fun one. There's only a few episodes out right now, but it's, it's a, a, a fun idea. Um, Steve Buscemi is a god where uh, he is a self-absorbed CEO of heaven, and uh, basically all the workers are just trying their best to protect the earth from him. <laughs> and one of the angels is Daniel Radcliffe. Okay, so Daniel Radcliffe is a, um, an angel in heaven that's in charge of answering prayers, but he's very aware of the kind of butterfly effects that uh, can be caused because he's he's completely constrained by the the laws of uh, the world, and all he can do is change probabilities a little bit. So he tends to pick uh, answering prayers like finding lost keys because he can do that just by you know melting one snowflake at a time a little bit faster or causing the wind to blow one leaf. And even then, he ends up creating a butterfly effect by helping a a robber find one of his gloves so that then he can go and commit a crime without leaving fingerprints. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, everything has to be really very carefully thought out. But, okay, so with these kind of small world miracles, we still have a couple of problems. First off, People want to point to these things and say, oh, look, see, this is clear evidence of God. But if you're able to point to something and it's acting as clear evidence of God, then God has actually failed here because the whole idea is that if he's coming down and making himself known, he's going to be altering your choices. So mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's one problem. The second and perhaps bigger problem is that why is this kind of miracle so spotty? If God can be altering probabilities to save one person in a, a plane wreck, why, why couldn't he have saved all the people in the plane, in the plane wreck? So God is hes still on the hook if um, he's only saving people uh, one time in ten, and he could have saved all 10 of them. But even worse, it seems like if God can step in to help Bob find his keys, then why isn't he putting all that probabilistic leverage into stopping something huge like averting the Holocaust? So he could have had Hitler have a sneezing fit every time (laughs) he wanted to give a rousing speech or explosive diarrhea or something like that. (laughs) But but he doesn't. So we have to then say, if God's not doing this, then if the free will theodicy is going to work, then he can't do that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, so then people are, can, might retreat to what they consider the least uh, intrusive kind of miracle, and that is the mental miracle. 
Um, I often hear from people who don't assume God really affects the physical world, that he's still there for them. He is offering them emotional support or helps them overcome a weakness of will, gave them comfort or just allowed them to feel his presence and that he's relatable. So um, I think I've, I've heard one Christian philosopher Marilyn McCord Adams, she kind of captured this idea. Mm-hmm. Her, one of her arguments was that it's important to, for life that we be optimistic, but in order to be optimistic, logically we're supposed to have this understanding of God as someone who acts as a companion in our suffering or know God on this deep personal level. However, what I think people are failing to understand is that a God that is willing to jump inside your brain and start pulling at your mental choices and giving you uh, thoughts and, and altering your desires is perhaps the most intrusive kind of effect he can do to damage something like the ability to choose. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I mean, the freedom of our mental processes would be critical to get God off the hook for suffering. If he's the one that is prompting us and giving us desires and he could give us the desire to not harm, then we have to wonder why he's not always doing that. Right. And and he's, yeah, it's, um, so... We can't have a God that will radically alter the decision-making process of his creatures. Um, and, uh, again, uh, it, would, it would literally be less intrusive if God was willing to come down from heaven and, say, give interviews on late-night talk shows or mm-hmm. you know, yeah. give lectures on CNN than to come in and, and talk to us inside our minds. <laughs> Okay, so just just to to go back over all this, if if we're going to have a God that allows suffering into this world, then we're going to have to have an explanation for why he allows this. Mm-hmm. The free will theodicy says that um, God is going to kind of keep hands off and just allow creatures to make his choices. But then we're going to have to make a choice between that and a God that performs miracles and makes himself known to us. Great. Nice. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. That's, that, that's fascinating. <laughs> so appreciate your, appreciate your talking to us. Oh, you bet. Bye. Our next guest is Trip McCrossan, who is a professor of philosophy at Rutgers University. Hi, Trip. Hi, Trip. Hi, Richard. Hi, Rachel. Thank you um, very much for joining us today. I'm delighted. So um, you've written quite a bit on the problem of evil and especially as it uh, manifests itself in pop culture. Um, Will you share with our listeners um, some of the instances that you think are most interesting or most noteworthy or just maybe your favorites, um, whatever you feel? Sure, I'd be happy to. I mean, if if I give you all of my favorites, we're going to be here all night, so I'll (laughs) pick and choose. So let me just start by very quickly giving a few examples, tangible examples of how the problem of evil turns up in popular culture. To do that, 
very quickly, let me just say that the problem of evil has various formulations. The most familiar one is the question, why good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good. Usually that means why such things happen to such people in kind of enormous, seemingly incomprehensible ways, right? But it does run the gamut, right? Mm -hmm. Philosophically, we usually think of that as a kind of gap between virtue and happiness. These two things that human beings seem instinctively want to do to be more as opposed to less happy, more as opposed to less virtuous. And the problem of evil is the recognition these two things come apart. Thirdly, there's a kind of theological formulation, how do we justify God's ways to humanity? And that goes back very far. The typical place we trace that back to is the book of Job. And in popular culture, two conspicuous ways the problem of evil comes up is in terms of specific references to the book of Job and or specific references to the colloquial formulation. So a couple of examples of Job. Uh, Margaret Atwood's famous novel, The Handmaid's Tale, in 1985, mm -hmm. Alfred, who we, because of the Hulu series now, refer to sometimes as June, mm -hmm. discusses, it seems fairly explicitly, the Book of Job as a kind of allegory embedded in her speech to allow the reader to understand her turmoil and how we should understand it. Joel and Ethan Cohen's A Serious Man, Larry Gopnik, is Job. That movie is a retelling of the Book of Job for all intents and purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, a third example, Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life, 2011, Mr. and Mrs. O'Brien. <clears throat> not only does the movie start with a quote from the Book of Job, not only is there a sermon within the film, but Mr. and Mrs. O'Brien are fairly regularly channeling Job in the various things that they say to the audience. In terms of the good things happening to bad people, bad things happening to good, that's turned up, for example, in two instances fairly recently in 2016. Uh, the series Mr. Robots, uh, those listening who know that series will remember Philip Price as the archetypal, archetypal evil agent, says to Angela, very unfortunate thing, very unfortunate when bad things happen to good people. And that's a clue to the rest of the audience, but also a clue that it's just the first half of the normal formulation, but the second half, that good things happen to bad people, is exemplified by Price himself. Mm -hmm. More humorously in The Good Place, uh, Eleanor says to Cheaty in the first season, seventh episode, more humorously now, why do bad things always happen to mediocre people who are lying about their identities? <laughs> <laughs> and these are just... These, these wonderful ways in which authors kind of intentionally or unintentionally are, are kind of injecting this long history of this long problem and uh, in, into, their, into their popular cultural offerings. Um, so, uh, so those are some examples. Great. Uh, thanks, Tripp. Um, can you maybe say a little bit about why the problem of evil, especially as it appears in pop culture, is philosophically interesting? Again, uh, you know, not giving all the reasons because we don't have all night. Let me let me say that it is my conviction that so a lot of my work goes back to, or a lot of my so I owe my work and interest in and understanding of the problem of evil to a watershed book called Evil and Modern Thought by Susan Neiman. And Susan Neiman differentiated 
the theological version about God from the more secular version that worries about the worry about happiness and virtue coming apart. And I think that this is a fundamental worry that most of us have to one degree or another, even if we're not people of faith with the kind of theological worry. And when this comes up in popular culture, and it doesn't always come up in the kind of specific ways I just suggested, but it comes up in this narrative way that allows us to understand slightly differently what would otherwise be a fascinating philosophical and entertaining bit of popular culture for other reasons. So, for example, the superhero narratives. It's one of many that have to do with the problem of evil, but superhero narratives, which we're all super familiar with, which some of us may actually be tiring of just a little bit, <laughs> as they <clears throat> superheroes proliferate and leagues and clubs and, you know, what are they going to do next? <laughs> but if you think back to the origins of the superhero narrative, not all the way back, because it goes back farther than this, but the conventional kind of watershed moment is in 39 with Superman and Batman. Mm -hmm. And then we have Wonder Woman and Captain America, eventually all the rest of them. And you have to ask yourself, okay, why these figures, what work are they doing for us? Why now? Well, the obvious answer to why now is that there is this horrible event, World War II, happening because of this horrible ideology called Nazism, which is the quickly becoming the kind of prototypical example of evil in the world. And people are responding to this by literally not knowing what to do, how to understand it, how to defeat it. And in response to this potential specter of evil being the thing that makes good things happen to bad people, bad things happen to good, we invent superheroes. We invent a way of making evil intelligible. Hmm. But interestingly, if you think, and it's not the only way to think about superheroes, but if it's one way to think about superheroes, it's one way to think about their heroism. Right? And it's also a way of asking yourself, why Superman and Batman? And then why Wonder Woman, who has a kind of status in between Superman and Batman. Why would that be? Well, because one is literally from another place, has powers that we don't have, can fix the world and save us, mm -hmm. whether we like it or not. Mm -hmm. The other one is merely mortal, doing the same work, defending the innocent, reducing suffering. And then we have Wonder Woman in between, who has what would be to us superpowers, but also not superpowers in the kind of otherworldly way in which Superman does. Mm -hmm. And as you see this kind of duality, you also start to think about their heroic features. And you understand that in some ways, while they're all of them superheroes, some are more heroic than others. Superman is a superhero, but less heroic because we can't emulate what super, Superman does. In that sense, Batman is in some ways more heroic because we can actually act as Superman does, assuming we have gobs of money and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And in that sense, you know, we're, we're drawn into the problem of evil in need of something that helps make evil intelligible to us when we can't make intelligible to ourselves, Superman. And then the possibility that we ourselves can actually make evil intelligible and do something about it ourselves, which is Batman. And so mm. you have this rubric that helps you to understand why these figures came about in the first place and why they came about with this kind of diversity. So that would just be 
kind of one example of how the problem of evil kind of helps us to kind of dig into something just with a new angle, not a better angle, just a new one, just a different one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, fascinating. Thank you. We appreciate you talking to us today. Of course. I'm so happy. Cheers. Cheers. Our final guest is John Collins. John teaches philosophy at East Carolina University. Hi, John. Hi, John. Hello. Hi, Richard. Rachel. Thanks for talking to us today. My pleasure. So um, a couple times, um, once very recently and once a few years back, you and I had um, sort of interesting conversation about what you were calling the problem of good. Um, and I, I wonder if you could just tell us sort of what that amounts to, how it cashes out, and then what the implications of that argument um, or that thought experiment is um, for those that offer theodicies um, in response to the problem of evil. Sure, I'd be happy to. So uh, consideration of the problem of good uh, for me arose out of thinking about the problem of evil. Um, so you think about all of the responses that theists uh, give, their, their solutions uh, for why there's evil. You have uh, theodicies and uh, skeptical theism, right? So you go through a list of theodicies like uh, uh, God lets um, people have freedom of the will in order to get the greater good of freely chosen good, but the cost of that is that um, people will do evil things uh, with their freedom. Um, or a uh, metaphysical theodicy, um, good can't exist without evil, or it's an epistemological variant that uh, we couldn't adequately uh, know or appreciate or recognize good if we, if we didn't have evil to compare it to, test of faith, things like that. And then, uh, you know, a skeptical theist um, solution, which is to say, well, maybe we can't, if we don't like any of those theodicies, maybe we can't um, understand why a good God would let bad things happen, but our inability to think of such a thing is really not to be taken as evidence that God has no such good reason, uh, given the finite resources um, of our minds. Um, And uh, it's hard to evaluate these particular solutions directly. Um, but I think uh, one indirect way of evaluating them is with uh, by considering a, a parody argument that is, uh, um, you know, isomorphic uh, to the responses that the theist gives to the problem of evil. Um, and so consider uh, diabolism. It's meant to be like theism, except uh, God is evil. You know, there's one God, creator of the universe, uh, with all perfections, all powerful, all knowing, but um, unsurpassably malevolent, completely evil. Um, Seems like there's now, good uh, evidence for that, given just the general features of my life. That, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, in general, we have you know, a mix of good and bad in, in the world, and so that doesn't particularly suggest uh, that there's an all-powerful evil being or an all-powerful uh, good being in charge. Um, <clears throat> but uh, if you do believe in this kind of evil God, uh, how would you deal with the problem of good? Uh, and it seems that it's exactly how a theist deals with the problem of evil. So you can take these theodicies and reverse them, call them diabolodicies or something. <laughs> uh, and so think about uh, free will. Um, 
an evil god could say that uh, you know uh, you could make everybody into you know robots who torture each other programmed but an even greater evil is um, freely chosen um, moral evil and so we have to give people freedom of the will to make this greater evil possible <laughs> but the cost of that is that some people are going to do morally good things damn uh, <laughs> Now, you might think that uh, this is not really on a par because free will is just good. It's a gift. Um, and certainly there's, there's some plausibility to that. But you can also push a case that free will is not a good thing, that it's exactly the thing that uh, an evil god would want to give us. Uh, a couple examples to uh, support this come from uh, the Holocaust. So think about Sophie's choice, uh, the woman who is given the choice of which one of her children is to be killed at a concentration camp. Probably the SS officer who made her make this choice would have uh, been kinder to her just to pick one of her kids to kill mm -hmm. instead of making her choose. Um, she becomes, to some degree, complicit in the crime in choosing uh, which of her children is to die, and she feels guilt afterwards. Um, and it's because she was given this choice. However she acted on it, whichever kid she, she picked or she would have refused to, she would have felt guilt, and it's because of her freedom. Uh, Primo Levi, who survived uh, concentration camp, said that the worst thing that the Nazis ever did was to... Um, get some of the uh, Jewish prisoners to cooperate with them, these Sonderkommandos uh, that would be given um, extra privileges in exchange for cooperating, rounding up people, supervising their work, sorting out baby shoes or whatever it was they did, um, that although they were you know, coerced, they were to some degree complicit in this crime. They were not pure victims anymore. So. When you give people freedom of the will, but the freedom is only to choose between uh, multiple morally bad outcomes, then you're not doing anybody a favor by making them free. You're making them guilty. Right, right. Wow. <laughs> uh, now, you can probably see how the other uh, theodicies can be uh, you know, repurposed, the metaphysical one and the epistemological one. It's just the same, the same point. Um, test of faith, story like Job. The story of Job already suggests a pretty evil God. Uh, and if you think that faith, belief without rational justification, is an evil, then... You know, the world has to be uh, sort of good to make faith, irrational belief in an evil God possible actually better suits um, the evil God hypothesis than a good God. Um, you know, the John Hick has the famous soul-making theodicy. Without right. evil, you can't have some good uh, moral character traits develop, like compassion and sympathy, right? But the same goes the other way. Uh, um, if the if the world were just uh, unending torture, um, or excuse me, was just uh, unending, um, yeah, if it was just unending torture, what you might expect an evil god to, to create, uh, then there wouldn't be any ingratitude. There wouldn't be any envy. Some moral mm -hmm. evils are related to the existence of good. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and then, you know, a, a diabolist uh, can be a skeptical diabolist. They could say, none of those reverse theodicies work for me. I still can't accept, you know, an evil god letting uh, a little kid play happily with a puppy. I just can't see how that is uh, evil. Um, and then you could say, well, you know, uh, um, our inability to think of a bad reason for an evil god to let a good thing happen is hardly evidence that evil god lacks any such bad reason. Um, it's uh, um, given our, our limited mental resources, we shouldn't necessarily expect that if there were such a bad reason, we'd be in a position to, to think of it. I, I wonder uh, if there's not kind of a, a Leibnizian variation on that here as well, right? So Leibniz's view is, you know, we, we have reason to think God exists, so this must be the greatest universe, and, you know, it's, it's maximally good, and that's just that. It's a similar kind of skeptical thing, right? So the Diabolus, in response to the, the skeptical argument, could just pull the same line and say, yeah, you know, what? we've got this, you know, diabolical God. Um, kids, yeah. kids play with puppies. They have a lot of fun. That's just the best logically possible evil world, mm -hmm. right? Um, right. The worst possible world, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, you know, if you assume the existence of a good God or an evil God, that's going to affect the way that you, you know, shape your uh, take on these goods and evils. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, uh, I think this really extends beyond just the, uh, the problem of, of evil and of good. Um, if you think about the general case to be made for theism, for a good, perfect God, you know, cosmological argument, uh, teleological argument, they're pretty much neutral on God's moral qualities. You know, cosmological argument is about some sort of, you know, unmoved mover or yeah. anything that could be a creator that's not dependent on anything. And that could easily be fulfilled uh, by uh, an evil God. The ontological argument is explicitly about God's goodness, mm -hmm. um, but that seems to be the one that is uh, most ingeniously can be repurposed for uh, evil. If you take the premise um, that, you know, Anselm used to premise something like if, if something was imaginary or existed only in the understanding, it couldn't be that then which nothing greater can be conceived. Good things, uh, with, when it comes to good things, existing is a great making quality. You know, a real God is greater than an imaginary God. But it seems like for bad things, great, uh, existence is a worse making uh, uh attribute you know a real hemorrhoid uh is better than an imaginary hemorrhoid uh you know a fictional hitler would not be as bad as the real hitler uh and so an imaginary evil being could not be as bad as a real one and so if you define you know evil god as that then which nothing worse can be conceived evil god can't be imaginary mm -hmm. uh and so the very, you know, it, and it, it seems like an equally plausible argument uh, to me, at least. Right, all the same virtues. Yeah, yeah. Or and, vices. And defense, <laughs> yeah. Right? I don't think that <laughs> ontological argument's a very good argument. Um, you know, there's, you know, privation accounts of evil that have been used, right? Evil can't really be a thing. It's got to be an absence of good. Uh, and I think... A lot of the arguments for a privation view of evil uh, can be repurposed to a uh, privation view of good. Good is just the absence of evil. 
Right, right. Um, another view that I think is not too strong, <laughs> but what can be said uh, for the one, I think, can be said for the other. Mm-hmm. So what, what, what do you take the payoff of this to be? Is, is the idea that if, if you can generate the exact same arguments um, for the, the polar opposite view, it, it neutralizes those arguments in some way? Or Some, some people have said um, maybe, uh, you know, both the theist and the diabolist succeed, and the problem of evil and the problem of good are not real problems, and that diabolism and theism remain as... as uh, um, you know, rationally defensible, each a rationally defensible claim. Um, but I think myself that uh, if if theism and diabolism are mutually exclusive, they're each defined as there's just one God, creator of the universe, uh, and they're not exhaustive because there's atheism and there's deism and uh, Manichaean worldviews and all kinds of other polytheist views. Then it's seen, and you and you take it that the general epistemic case for diabolism and theism are on a par. Uh, then I think it's hard to avoid the conclusion that both diabolism and theism are far more likely to be false than true. Each of them. Mm-hmm. Nice. Well, uh, awesome. So thank you very much for talking to us. Um, that, that's interesting stuff. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. What are we liking this week? Well, this really becomes what have we liked for the past month, I think. Yeah, we're, we've been liking lots of things. Right. So um, yesterday we took our son to see Captain Marvel. Um, don't want to spoil anything about it, but um, pretty great. Marvel never disappoints, in my yeah, opinion. Another great uh, contribution to the franchise. Yeah. A um, couple things that, that I wasn't crazy about, some of the effects, um, but I, I thought the story was a lot of fun and the action was great. and it, There wasn't too much action, which is always kind of off-putting for me. Um, we really liked Russian Doll, um, the Netflix original. I'm hoping they'll do a, another season of it. And in fact, we're planning an episode for this season on, hopefully this, this doesn't spoil too much, but on Groundhog Day type uh, type stories of, of which Russian Doll is one. Right, and in fact, we're going to do that episode in a couple of weeks. Yeah, that, that'll be the next one. Um, yeah, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. I can't recommend this enough. Um, what's it about? Um, death. It's a, it's a <laughs> yeah, lot about death. death. Yeah. Uh, there's some great songs. Um, it, yeah, it's Coen Brothers. It looks good. Really it, fun. It feels good. There's there's some really great performances. Um, yeah, I, I hadn't even heard of this, and um, a friend, um, some friends recommended it and said, you got to watch this, and it's a series of vignettes. I think there are six of them, so we, we watched one together really quickly, and then um, they left, and Rachel and I instantly had to watch all the rest. It was all we could do to save a couple of them for the next day. That's right. Um, this season of Crashing has been a lot of fun. Um, some characters will make you want to hide under the blanket the whole time. Like I did, yeah, <laughs> but very fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we're also enjoying the current season of Shameless, and I think we can say the same thing there, right? Oh, there's, yeah, yeah. There's a little bit of that. Um, in the cinema, we went and saw The Favorite. Um, absolutely fantastic. We, we, did that, that one did well at the Oscars, I think. 
Yeah, yeah, great um, um, Oscar acceptance speech mm-hmm. um, associated with that. So lots of good things. Um, we'll go into more detail um, about um, some of them at a later point. Um, don't want to reveal too many spoilers. And also we have some topics coming up. All right, so episode 17 is in the can. It's a wrap um, once again. Everything has come up Charbonneau. It's good to be back in the podcast business. I, I missed it. Um, I think we should say we've, we've got a little bit of a format change, although it's, it's a change from what we've done previously, but not what we were planning on doing. So season three um, will have an episode released every other Tuesday. Um, and then in the fall, when we come back with season four, we'll be back on our eight-week straight-on schedule um, and then the same with episode five next spring. So um, just the, the timing with our work and travel schedules um, makes this work out nicely. So the way we're conceiving of it is essentially that in those episodes that take us into the summer, we'll be releasing, right? The, the season that yeah. goes into the summer, we're releasing every other week instead of every week. When we believe that most of you have better things to do than sit around and listen to podcasts, but know that you can squeeze in 40 minutes to an hour every other week. There's never anything better to do than that. This is true. All right. So um, as we mentioned, next week we're going to be talking about this Groundhog Day phenomenon, which is um, starting to show up in pop culture in, in many places. Maybe we shouldn't mention groundhogs. I think people are starting to get angry at the groundhog for... Yeah, His I, prediction of an early spring. I saw a meme today about severing Puxatani Phil's head for, <laughs> for um, fake news, I say as I glance out at the snow-covered ground. Ah. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. See ya. Bye.